Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 33. Or your little mobile devices. We're going to be in verses 7 all the way through the end of the chapter this morning. On this balmy Sunday. Kathy told me she heard on the radio that it was supposed to snow tomorrow night. If it doesn't, Pastor Jeff did not lie to you. Kids. My kids are excited. Either way, this is good fire in the fireplace weather, is it not? Isaiah 33. We spent last week just talking through the first six verses. We saw that in the context of 1 Kings 18, that Syria is at the gates of Jerusalem. Hezekiah, the king of Judah at the time, had tried to pay off Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, to no avail. That Assyria had sliced and diced their ways from one town to another through the southern kingdom of Judah and now sit outside of the gates of Jerusalem. And it seems that all is lost. Their money is gone. The honor of their God is gone. Their king appears impotent, powerless. What are they going to do? Last week, we finished with a promise that the Lord is exalted. It's not one of these tribal deities that Assyria in their own mind had so easily vanquished in their path of terror. The Lord is an altogether different being than anybody that they had ever encountered. And he dwells on high and he promises that he will fill Zion, a new Jerusalem, with justice and righteousness. And yet, like a father uses a rod against their child to teach and to discipline, so God says that he uses Assyria in a similar way. That he's teaching and training his people. And sometimes that's uncomfortable, isn't it? Sometimes we end up asking really hard questions. When we're confronted with bitter providences in our own life, or perhaps even when we have to face the harsh realities of the consequences of of sinful decisions that we've made, either in the present or in the past, or perhaps even years ago, they can feel so bitter. What is God doing What good could possibly come from things like that? It's a big idea of our text this morning. As we see the Lord drawing his people into trusting in him and not trusting themselves anymore for self-salvation. That it's been proven that they cannot save themselves. Their wisdom is insufficient. Their power is insufficient. Their money is insufficient. Their king is insufficient. They're as low as you could possibly go. And they only have one thing left to turn to. And that's the grace of God. And that's where we find ourselves picking up in verse 7. I'm going to read through the passage. But as I do, I just want you to keep in mind this one big idea, which is essentially going to serve as my sermon in a sentence. That those who trust in God will be untroubled and immovable. Because the Lord is on their side. Those who trust in God will be untroubled and immovable because the Lord is on their side. 
Follow along with me. Beginning of verse 7. Or 6, rather. Nope, 7. My wind, wind's blowing my pages around. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The travelers ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert and Bashan and Carmel shape, shake off their leaves. Looking back at verses 7 and 8, you can see how the language of these verses reflect the terror in Judah after Assyria had acted treacherously. And they had carved their way city by city through the southern kingdom and now sit outside of Jerusalem's gates. Notice in verse 7, there are no heroes left. Peace negotiations have completely fallen through that the most bloody and the most brutal kingdom in the whole world is standing outside of your gates. Lest we feel sorry for Judah, Judah is not the victim here. These are the consequences of what we had seen in previous chapters. It is the consequences of their, what we called functional atheism. Though their outward life looked like they were keeping all of the commandments and going through the motions of worship and feasts and festivals and so on and so forth, inwardly they were rebelling against God and his word, disbelieving his promises and looking to other saviors. They were seeking to save themselves by any means necessary, while at the same time refusing to trust in the Lord and his promises to them. What they could see with their eyes... Oh, it just seems so much more reasonable, so much more pragmatic than the promises of God that they could not see, that they cannot control. How much is Judah like us sometimes? But in the end of verse 9, you notice that rebellion against God, well, it leads ultimately to a withered existence. Lebanon in the Bible is an image of permanence and stability. It's where big trees come for the building of the temple. Sharon is that which is beautiful. Bashan speaks of life and fertility. Carmel is known elsewhere in the scripture as the golden land. It's a land of order and of planning. But this is what sin does, not just for Judah, but as we notice here in verse 9, for the whole world, for humanity at large. And it's what it does in our own lives. It turns stability into instability. Beauty into blight, life and vitality into decay and order and disorder or order into disorder and chaos. God had promised to give Judah, you remember, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land in which they would prosper as his people if they would just trust him and obey him. But here we see that, quote, the land mourns and languishes. It is under the curse of God, no longer under the blessing of God, because the people of God would not keep the word of God. 
Thomas Watson soberly commented, and I think it captures the spirit of verse 9 really well. Sin is a plague. It's the greatest and most infectious plague in the world. And yet, ah, how few are there that tremble at it or keep a distance from it. Watson raises a good point, one that perhaps hits too closely to home in our own day. Not only recognizing the infectious spread of sin's consequences around the world and in our own lives and and in Judah, verse 9, but even just in our own days, I wonder, do we spend as much time guarding ourselves from sin as we do from pandemics? Are we as creative and intentional? Do we exercise as much foresight and wisdom? Do we spend as much time seeking the wisdom of others as we do trying to figure out how to be safe in a pandemic? Friends, there is a pandemic that is worse than the one that we face right now, and it is a pandemic that destroys far more than body, but one that aims for your very soul, and it is sin, death, and Satan. I wonder if you fear that as much as you fear coronavirus. If you fear the spread of sin as much as you fear the spread of COVID. To quote Watson again, how few are there that tremble at it, that keep a distance from it? Do you tremble at sin? At the consequences of it? Of its reality? I think if there's one thing that we said for every single one of us here is that none of us take sin seriously enough. All of us could take sin more seriously. And consequently, none of us take the good news of Jesus Christ seriously enough. And we could all take it more seriously. These things are related to one another. But as we consider just the blight of verse 9, I want to suggest that we need to get out of our silly minds, this, or out of our minds, the silly thought that only scandalous sins are destructive, whereas respectable sins are merely just nuisances to ourselves and others. Friends, let me warn you on a number of things, three things really. Number one, sin's temptation is deceptive. As we've commented a number of times before, it always hides the price tag. It promises one thing and yet delivers another. Always promising life, delivering death. This is the way that it always is. Sin's temptations are always deceptive. But secondly, sin's consequences are destructive. There's no such thing as a non-destructive sin. Too many of us are convinced, perhaps in our own little respectable sins of our, of our pride, whether that be in our own self-righteousness or religious pride or political pride or, or perhaps in things that we don't talk about quite as much, be it not the public scandalous sins, but the private sins behind our close doors, the way that perhaps we might abuse alcohol or food or the way that we might gossip about others, but always make it sound a little bit more holy by saying, God bless them, but friends, all of these are sins and open-handed rebellion against God and many more. 
And we need to remember that all sin, not just scandalous sin, is destructive. But there's something else that we need to be reminded of, and it's concerning specifically those who belong to God. Even when they find themselves sinning. And that is, thirdly, that God will use the consequences of our sin not to destroy us, but to discipline us. Not to trample us, but to train us. And that's exactly what we see in the following verses. That as bleak as the picture of verse 9 may be, the good news is that the effects of sin are not greater than the power of God. That for the sake of his elect, God is going to discipline his people. Look at verse 10. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive shaft. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Oh, God has Judah exactly where he wants them. Assyria was just a tool in his hand, a rod of discipline that he would use to teach and to shape his people. And when Assyria had fulfilled all of his purposes, well, he'd put them away. And when Judah could go no lower, that had nothing left. And not a moment sooner does God say, now I will arise. You notice that three times he says it. Now, 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 at the appropriate time, just as I've planned, I have you right where I want you. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, then there's been a moment in your life that has been marked by a decisive now. A moment when God has brought you perhaps to the lowest point when you realize that you have nothing left to give. No other means of self-salvation. And he says, now I will help you. He's brought you to the end of yourself. You have nothing left in the world to trust in. Nothing in your own strength and wisdom to trust in. You have nothing left. And he goes, now I can work with this. Now I will arise the... The imagery in the, in the passage when he says, now I will arise, is this idea of now I will wake up. Of course, we know that the God never sleeps or slumbers. It's more from the perspective of Judah. Where's God? Why isn't he acting? Why is he asleep? He's going, now I've got you right where I want you. And where I wanted you is with nothing left but my grace to depend on. And now, now, I will come to your help. Because it's in that moment, as we see in verse 10, that God glorifies himself by speaking doom to everything that would destroy his people. And you can see that as you glance at verses 11 and 12. Speaking of Assyria and all the enemies, that they will be like chaff. Friend, this now moment is exactly what God has done for each one of us, that while we were still weak, some of your translations say that while we were helpless, we had nothing left to offer. At the right time, Christ died for us. I oh, just think about that phrase, at the right time. Exactly when God had fulfilled his purposes in the world such that his son would come in and accomplish God's redemptive purposes 
and he would save for himself a people, including you and I, those of us who have trusted in Christ, that at the right time, now I will arise, says the Lord in his son Jesus, through his incarnation. It is God's part to save. But what is our part? What do we contribute to it? Well, look at verse 7. Just going back up to that, our part really is just to cry in the streets. We cry, God responds. We get crushed. We get to the point where we have nothing left to depend on. And God says, now I'm going to act. It's essentially an admitting of our inability to even save ourselves or commend ourselves to God in any way or to to leverage the good deeds that we've done in our life in any way to make God work for us. God cannot be bribed by our good works. We have nothing. What we see in the rest of our passage, beginning in verse 13 to 24, really, and what we see in our own lives is a clear truth of the Bible. So we see in Psalm 51 that a broken and a contrite heart he will not despise. Our instincts tell us, though, that what really moves Christ are really well put together people. We believe the lie that God really despises broken hearts, weak people. We believe that God has, well, he has a lot of work to do in the world. And the kind of people that he does that work through are those kinds of hearts that are all strong and put together. Broken hearts are hearts that he can't do anything with. What God needs, we think, is buttoned up culture warriors, not broken hearted sinners. Brothers and sisters, this is a lie. God brings Assyrias into our life so that our hearts will be broken. And in our hearts being broken, we would turn to him at full faith and dependence, trusting in his grace to fulfill his promises in and through us to save us and protect us and preserve us through this life and into the next. Friends, this is the kind of heart that God uses. Because the truth is, is that these are the only kinds of hearts that God wants. He's not looking for buttoned up hearts. He's looking for broken hearts, contrite hearts. Those who've been brought low as Judah has been brought low. Because as the Bible says elsewhere, those those who humble themselves will the Lord exalt. It's the paradox of the gospel, isn't it? That those who die live. Those who make themselves last will be first. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. All of which is exemplified in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. How often do we think contrary to that in our own life? But this is how the gospel works. This is the kind of heart that God desires. One that has been broken. One that has nothing left to lean on and hold on to and grasp. But him. And I wonder, is your heart broken and contrite in that way? And when you're confronted with sin in your own life, when you're confronted with ways in which you've failed to believe God and obey his word, do you begin to justify your sin with all the other ways that you've done really, really well? Perhaps with all the ways that perhaps you're better than those others who just sin more and more scandalously than you do. 
Or do you measure yourself up against the transcendent holiness of God in such a way that you have nothing left to say, but like Isaiah, woe is me. That is when God has you right where he wants you. So for those of you who are here and you are wounded and shattered, Isaiah chapter 33 is for you. The Bible says of God, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. And we want so badly to to get God off the hook for wounding and shattering. But the Bible's clear that he's the one that does it. He's the one that brings it. And it's all according to his good purposes. Why does he wound and why does he bind so that he would, sh- so that he would heal? That's the goal. As we've learned in our previous chapters, God's judgment is his strange work. Mercy is his normal work. That Christ's way is first to wound and then it's to heal because he is a good physician. So brothers and sisters, our sin has to first be exposed in order for the wounds that it leaves behind and to be healed. This is the Lord's discipline. It's what the Father does in our lives to help us grow in grace. And we know in our own lives that the Lord's discipline is effective, that we are in fact growing in grace. When in Christ, we see him less and less as a useful savior and more and more as a beautiful king. So we're going to see in the rest of our passage, beginning in verse 13, hear you who are far off what I have done and you who are near acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid, trembling as seize the godless who among us can dwell with the consuming fire who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of the rocks. His bread will be given to him and his water will be sure. In verse 13, Isaiah is saying that God is holy, that he is a consuming fire that will, that will burn forever, that he is good, but he is also unsafe for sin and for sinners. Our problem is that we fear all of the wrong things. When life gets hard, we end up asking questions like, why isn't God helping me? We ask questions like, What good could God possibly bring from this? But when you look at verse 14, we see that when you're gripped by the truth of God's holiness, of his majestic otherness, that he's altogether other from us, different than us. And in light of that holiness, we begin to grasp for the first time our utter unworthiness. Oh, then we begin to ask different sets of questions. Questions along the lines of, who am I that you care for me? How can a life like mine possibly be compatible with someone like him? And it's this subtle shift in your life, in your thinking, in your questioning that becomes a big step towards spiritual renewal. How so? Well, first of all, in verse 15, we notice that your entire outlook on life gets reformed in how you walk and in how you talk. In what you love and in what you despise. In who you hang out with 
in everything that it is that you look at and listen to. That in all of life, you begin to love sin less and less. And more and more, you begin to love righteousness and uprightness. And you find that ultimate security and stability in our lives comes not from a mere change in circumstances, but even if our circumstances never change, it ultimately comes from a change of heart by trusting and obeying God, even in the midst of Assyria camping outside the gate. Isaiah says that this person will dwell on the heights out of our enemy's grasp that this person will be well defended in a fortress of rocks and that at the end of verse 16, his hunger will be satisfied and his thirst will be quenched. Jesus might as well be summarizing Isaiah in verses 15 and 16 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 15 for they shall be satisfied. Verse 16. Brothers and sisters, that, that satisfaction is not the only mark of a blessed life. A couple of breaths later in the Sermon on the Mount, you may remember that Jesus says, also blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And that is exactly where Isaiah goes next in verse 17. Your eyes will behold, get this, I love this phrase, the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. That God's grace is going to bring about a reversal of our entire perception of reality. Just like there are times when we all see the troubling circumstances around us. It seems that that's all we can focus on. In the same way that all Judah could do was see Assyria at the gates. But now notice in verse 17, they behold something new. The eyes of their hearts have been enlightened to behold the king and his beauty. And notice the consequence of this change of perspective in the next line. That they will see a land, verse 17, that stretches afar. That even when the enemy is at the gates, the faithful know that they lie secure. As if in a land that shows no threat from any side. This is the security of those that belong to Jesus. You remember from last week that Sennacherib taunted Judah. Told him not to trust in God, but to trust in the king of Assyria. Well, the spirit of God has done is open their eyes to see not only. That it's only with this beautiful king that they are safe. That the trial that once seemed so overwhelming is now being viewed through an entirely different lens. And now, according to verse 18, Assyria is just a memory. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighted the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers all talking about Assyria? No, you will no more see the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. You may remember from earlier chapters that that obscure speech and stammering tongue was an act of God's judgment for their disbelief, but is now being handled and taken care of. That when we, when our eyes behold the king and his beauty, verse 17, we begin to see everything in his light. Verses 18 and 19. You may remember writing for prison, the apostle Paul wrote, 
Oh, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Imprisonments, beatings, death. Bah, it is nothing because I have seen the king in his beauty. So if I live, great. If I die, great. Because to live is Christ and to die is more Christ. It begins to color and change and transform everything, even the most bitter circumstances in our lives. That whether I live or whether I die, that Christ will be glorified in my body, is what Paul says. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Essentially, what the Apostle Paul was doing is what we see here in verse 18. He was musing on terror. <laughs> what can harm me? I belong to Jesus. He's musing on imprisonments, musing on beatings, musing on stonings, musing on being hated and driven out of towns for the preaching of the gospel, musing on all of this. Why? Because he has been invincibilized in Jesus. He muses at terror. Everything is put in right perspective by the light of this king. That when you behold the king and his beauty, verse 19, you don't see troubles the same way ever again. You interpret everything through the lenses of God's good purposes. And this is exactly what the Holy Spirit does in all of our hearts. It's what he did in Paul's heart. That is, he makes Jesus glorious to our hearts as we behold him in the gospel. Friends, this morning, I want to challenge you by asking a question. That on a day-to-day, do you view Jesus more as a useful savior to be tapped into or rubbed every once in a while like a rabbit's foot when life gets hard? Or do you see him as the king in his beauty? And does that beauty shed light and transform the way you see everything in your life, not just the good things in your life, but even the bad things in your life that he will use for good? Does it stabilize you? Does it strengthen you? Does it free you from discouragement and despair? Do you rest in him or do you just use him when you need him from time to time? Friend, a simply useful savior is no savior at all. That's a divine vending machine. There is only one God and one savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is not a vending machine, but a king. And he's beautiful. Do you know this king? This is our king. Verse 20, finally, we see what this king has done. The crisis is over. The enemy has been defeated. Of course, everything has been happening with Judah and with Assyria and and everything going on politically and otherwise. Really, this is just a big three-dimensional prophecy that is pointing to a greater work that God is doing in Christ of redemption and restoration. And that's exactly what we see talked about here in verse 20. Speaking, I think of the day of the Lord. 
The enemy's been defeated. The Zion of God, that is a renewed Jerusalem, will finally feast and they will rest. Not because they've learned how to cope with all of their problems, not because they learned better coping skills, but because they are finally at peace with God. Just as an interesting point, in the Masoretic Hebrew text, you don't have to know any of that. It's just fancy words. Masoretic Hebrew text. There is an old rabbinic note that marks verse 20 as the exact midway point of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 33 verse 20 is the middle verse in the whole book. And this rabbi points it out, I don't think, just by coincidence but rather they saw something and we should see something as well. And that is that verse 20 ultimately takes us to the heart of Isaiah's whole prophetic message. And that is that by God's grace, those who trust in the Lord will be transformed into an untroubled, immovable city who according to verse 21 can face anything with him as their savior because, get this, because there the Lord in his majesty will be for us. <laughs> oh, that's good news to sinners. He will be for us. He will be a place of broad rivers and streams. Just note that the broad rivers and streams is not just simply things that are present in this new land where Zion is. No, it says the Lord himself will be to us broad rivers and streams. What is he talking about here? Well, he's being broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ships can pass. He sums up what he's talking about in verse 22. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king, and he will save us. That's the great anthem of the book of Isaiah. The verses 17 through 19 describe the king taking us into a land with secure borders. Then verses 21 to 23 match that by describing not the land, but the presence of God himself as a place of broad rivers and streams, meaning there's no possibility of attack by sea. In a Hebrew worldview, the sea is always a place of trouble and of chaos and of destruction. That's why when you get to the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, it says that, or Revelation 20 rather, or 21 rather, it says that there is no more sea. I mean, there's no more water in the new creation. What he's saying is that there's no more chaos. There's no more destruction. There's no more sin. Nothing unholy is entering into Zion ever again. And it's the same thing here. There's no more sea. God's people are safe in the Lord. All of this just really highlights how much God cares for his people. That all of the ways in which he had wounded them was really an act of his love as a father to bring us to the point where that we, we would trust in him and he would secure us to himself. And notice in verse 23, what is our role in this great and decisive victory? Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. The prey and the spoil in abundance be divided. Even the lame will take its prey. In other words, what are we? What, what role did we play? What did we contribute to this great victory? 
Nothing at all. We're just a beat up ship that can't keep its mast up or its sails spread. The Lord is the one who keeps us afloat. The Lord is the one who secures us. The Lord is the one who has saved us. In other words, there will be no question in that day that the victory belongs to the Lord. And then Isaiah concludes in verse 24, an important verse for us. For failures and sinners like us to remember because it sums up well the themes of the chapter. That the God who wounds us over our sins is also the God who heals us. But we need to understand as Isaiah is pointing out here that the healing that we need is not ultimately a change of circumstances, a change of relationships. No, what we need more than anything is a change in our standing with God. Because our greatest problem is not our circumstances. Our greatest problem is our sin. He says, and no inhabitant will say that I am sick. Why? He's not talking about physical sickness. What is he talking about? Because the people who dwell there in Zion, in the new Jerusalem, that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The people who dwell there will be forgiven of their iniquity. That is the good news of the gospel. That Isaiah uses a Hebrew idiom here that makes this image of the forgiveness of iniquity vividly graphic. It, it suggests that, that when God forgives our iniquity, he, he bears it away. It's the exact same language that's used all the way back in Leviticus 16. Remember Leviticus 16 on the day of atonement, two goats are brought out. One is slaughtered and offered as sacrifice. The other, the high priest, after making sacrifices, confesses the sins of the nation over what's called the scapegoat. And then he lets it go into the wilderness and they watch that goat go away until he disappears. And the, and the whole image is, at least for this year, this is what God has done to the sins of the nation. He will preserve you and protect you yet for another year because he has caused your sins. He's bared them away into oblivion in the same way that he's done with that scapegoat. But this language in verse 24 in these prophetic promises of peace along with the imagery of Leviticus 16 and that scapegoat and everything that we find in the ceremonies of the Old Testament. Ultimately, all of this is pointing to Christ. That through his atoning work on the cross, the blood of Christ did what the blood of goats could never do. That he was offered once and for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. Such that no more offerings need to be made. No more atonement is necessary. Nothing else needs to be offered on our behalf to God. Because the blood of Christ is sufficient. The good news of the gospel to sinners like us is that if we are in Christ by faith, he is all of our righteousness. He is the means whereby we have right standing before a holy God who is a consuming fire. And yet we do not get burned because we have been hidden away in Christ. That he is, as Ryan mentioned earlier, our propitiation. You know what that big word means? It's a big fancy word that means satisfaction that Christ has satisfied the legal demands of God's wrath against our sin on the cross such that we bear it no more. The Christ is like a big wrath absorbing sponge 
such that all of the wrath that our sin deserves is absorbed by Christ and not a single drop is left for us. (laughs) If you're visiting us this morning, I don't know where you are. But I know without knowing you, because the Bible knows you, that you are a sinner. And you are in desperate need of the grace of God to save you from the wrath of God for your sin. And all of the grace that you need is available to you, not in more church attendance, more good works, somehow causing all the bad things you've done to be outweighed by the good things you've done. No, 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 no. All the grace that you need has been made available for you in Christ. He has arisen for sinners. If your heart would be one that is broken and contrite before him, that is a heart that he will accept and none other. Oh, friend, I plead with you that you would find the king in his beauty such that you would not find him a consuming fire and that you would trust in him.